Welcome back, friends, to another episode of The Encouraging Word. I'm here with uh, Stephen Young, Director hi. of Youth Ministries. Say hi, Stephen. Hi. My second time I said hi. Oh, sorry. Did I <laughs> did I miss the first time? My apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and my name is Paul Bennett. I'm Associate Pastor here. Rocky River United Methodist Church coming to us, uh, to you from our, our glorious studio here on the second floor of the church. Uh, it's a beautiful day outside, the sun is pouring in, and we have a great conversation to get to today, uh, inspired by the the changing seasons of, of fall and uh, just a wonderful uh, time of year. Stephen and I are excited to start a new series with you, and our, our series is going to be focused on the early Christian church. Uh, going to be focused on the uh, the history of the Christian church beginning post-Acts, uh, post the book of Acts, and uh, all the way on up uh, through the centuries um, uh, pertinent today, I think is the ultimate plan. Uh, we will be weaving some, some other material uh, within. We expect this, uh, this will be a longer series. We want to cover uh, some things pretty well in depth here. So um, this will just be something we continue to return back to after mixing in some other content. But uh, our initial attempt here is, is going to focus on the early church leaders of just the first couple of centuries after the church came into existence. And it's uh, been fun researching some of these folks, and uh, we have a lot to share, a lot to, to discuss. Uh, but before we can do that, we got to cover our, our fit segment, our uh, things from past week or so that have been funny or interesting or thought-provoking. So right. uh, what uh, sort of <coughs> fit segment you got for us? Right. So, um, yeah, for my fit segment is actually about me trying to get fit. <laughs> wow, I like great? what you did there. Yeah. Uh, if I knew how to really um, add sounds in the podcast, I would add it. That would have been, uh, been a great point right That's there. That's good enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna. I'm trying to. I s- went back to the gym, so I was working out fairly consistently up until COVID and after COVID hit. And so COVID plus your own, my own lack of desire sometimes. <laughs> just combined to make me I hadn't worked out for probably over a year so now I've decided to go back and maybe so it's supposed to be funny interesting thought provoking maybe this is the funny just because (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm laughing on (laughs) the inside laughing at me trying to get back in the gym Um, I would say it's uh, it's always a little discouraging not a little it's always discouraging when you return back to the gym and you remember your former self (laughs) where you used to be and then you think oh i can do what i used to do and then you try to do it and you epically fail in the middle of the gym and you're panting for air (laughs) and you (laughs) it's like they need to call 911 and ask if you're okay um but yeah i'm on the long road i feel like i'm long road recovery but it's not i'm not like recovering from anything i'm on the long road of trying to get back in shape and um so yeah that's uh you can just keep me in your thoughts as i um try to get back in shape and i'm gonna do my best i was supposed to go yesterday and i didn't so i'm already um falling on my commitment so yeah that's my fit i like it getting fit i was very fitting (laughs) that you would bring that (laughs) to our fit segment (laughs) 
Well, well um, best the of luck to you. The dad jokes are all out today. Yes, so. yes. Well, it's pretty much all I have in my <laughs> repertoire, so right. uh, I guess you just have to get used to them. But yeah. you did kind of set yourself up for yeah, that one. Yeah, I guess yeah. I did. Uh, no, on a serious note, I'm, I'm excited for you and... and um, a little jealous and you know yeah when you get we could work out together when you're gonna come out to, to the to yeah, the gym could, yeah i was thinking maybe like my driveway or <laughs> you know a gym is is always a, a little intimidating for me oh, yeah. uh basically because i walk in and you know all of the machines look like i don't know what they are i think i'm like in a factory or like a you know some sort of a weird hospital right. or I don't even know what to do with right. them. I, I right. just kind of grab onto a bar and start <laughs> swinging around, <laughs> and then people start yelling. No, I haven't spent a ton of time in gyms. I'm, I'm uh, if I do anything at all, it's it's cardio, and even yeah, that you know. is very inconsistent. But yeah. the more you succeed, Stephen, the more inspired I know I will be, okay. and maybe we'll find right. some common coach. ground. There yes, yes, yeah. Well, uh, my my fit segment piece is not as uh, fitting as Stevens, but it is uh, something I'm excited to share. A couple weeks ago, Stephen and I were both part of the Men's Adventure Weekend, and uh, so I wanted to take a moment just to give a shout out to all those who attended, and uh, to thank in particular the the leaders of um, our Rivermen group that kind of stepped up and took charge for Rivermen Adventure Weekend. Uh, Steve Steve Harry, Brian Mitchell, I know both played important roles in getting us there and, and getting everything organized. Uh, Michael Perry, though, as always, went above and beyond and, and just uh, literally brought everything um, down to Mohican, uh, including a full chest freezer. I believe, did we have yeah. a kitchen sink? It, it felt like we did. I don't know yeah. if we did. But uh, yeah. oh, he was very well prepared and put right. a tremendous amount of time and energy into making it a successful weekend and, and led the charge as far as uh, keeping things moving throughout the weekend. So thank you to Michael Perry, other leaders, those who attended. Um, I had an absolute blast. Uh, a few things better than just uh, enjoying some campfires and fellowship time playing games um just getting to know some of the other gentlemen of the church so uh look forward to seeing the group grow next year that that attends uh you can kayak the river with us you can play some cornhole uh steven likes to likes to lose to to others at cornhole um (laughs) and i would be happy to do that for you next next year uh and and it's just a, a whole lot of fun um so Shout out to Men's Adventure Weekend uh, participants. I uh, really enjoyed spending that time with you all. But uh, time we get to work here, Stephen, we have uh, a lot of history to cover, um, yeah. like uh, thousands of years of it. So uh, we we want to focus this uh, this session in particular on um, three individuals who were leaders of the early church and talk about their unique roles. So. I think Stephen's going to lead lead us into the first of those three. Yeah, so we're um, I've been I'm really excited about this. We've been talking about talking a while about um, doing a series on church history and Christians um, post Acts. So looking at everything, um, we're basically looking at the the work that the apostles did. So we have Christ and then the apostles, and now we're looking at the apostles of the apostles. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that's not confusing enough. Um, so this is, uh, I'm just excited to um, do the, the series as we 
um, watch as the church grows and expands and um, the message of the gospel reaches out into the world and continues to this day. Um, that message continues to reach people around the world. Um, so um, well, we're going to talk about three um, early church fathers. Um, and the first one is Clement of Rome. The uh, Clement of Rome. So um, he was the bishop of Rome from 88 to 88 to 99 CE or AD, which um, I grew up with BC and AD, and I know some other people grew up with CE and is it BCE? Like BCE, and then I think AD is still right. is still the thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm just yeah. so used to those before the Common Era, yeah, right? Before is, the Common and, Era, but and they still like AD, era, which right. is after. I thought it was after death, right? Is that what it means? I don't 80s. think so. I don't think because uh, who's death? I mean, Jesus is. They're a little off. <laughs> it's well, he, he did die and rise again, so you could say after death. Well, That's he what I thought it meant. We'll I, have to, we'll have to do uh we'll have to do some research on AD. Yeah, I think there. Were, I think BC. I, I thought it was always before, before Christ. Christ. Right. AD. If it's after death, he didn't die till thirty. So why did they right. not start? Well, yeah. Yeah, that's. We'll we, we'll talk off air. We're drawing here. We better we, we better come <laughs> yeah. back to you with that one. Yeah, we'll, we'll get our stuff together. Anyways, uh, Clement of Rome. He's said to be the fourth pope, even though "pope" in quotation marks there because um, pope, as we know it today, didn't really exist then. The office did not exist as we understand it. So, the, even though the Catholic Church likes to claim him as a pope, but that's very debatable. Uh, Clement had a personal contact with Simon Peter and studied under the apostles. Um, perhaps um, there's um, in Philippians chapter. This is what's really cool. Philippians chapter four. Let me turn to my. Luckily, my Bible has these little tabs here. <laughs> Students were proud of his tabs. Go really quick. He speaks um, quite often about them, <laughs> and clearly they're Actually, it's helping. Not, it's not working. Right now. <laughs> yeah. You um, just need more tabs. Yeah, I need a tab for every book. Right. Here we go. Philippians chapter four, verse three. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul wrote this, and he says, "Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help those women since they have." contented at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So that mention of Clement in Philippians chapter 4 verse 3, there's a um, a lot of people want to say that that's the Clement of Rome. Um, so, which is absolutely possible. Um, it's not certain, but that's definitely, um, de- definitely a possibility. Um, Clement is, is known to be a freed man, a former slave, um, who is now freed. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Um, he wrote, also referenced several of the canonical books in, in his letters that he wrote. Um, his most famous letter is First Clement. Um, it's a pretty long, um, really dense letter. There's other letters that are kind of given reference to him but there's not evidence strong evidence that he actually wrote them um and then for his martyrdom um there's debate about it but he supposedly was drowned tied to an anchor and drowned um but there's some debate about that so yeah that's the clement of rome it's kind of a 
really quick overview of him. Huh. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, just add a few things. Uh, in particular, I, I just had some notes about the content of his letter, um, just to help put that in, in context. Um, but I had his dates from 35 to 99, so I guess he would have been born right. just about five years or so after Christ's um, right. you know, return to the Father. So this is, you know, he is right smack right. dab uh, in that in that era of right. the, the early church. Um, this uh, first Clement letter was written towards the end of his life, so towards the end of the first century, about 95 um, A.D., and uh, his letter, amongst other things, it, it confirms um, just by connecting context clues here that the Roman church at the time, and, and the church in Rome, if you can picture, um, you know, every city, every town had their own church. People just kind of gathered around geographical uh, commonalities, but the church in Rome seemed to have the loudest voice of, of all of them because uh, of the size of the city. But at the time, the Roman church was still ruled by, uh, they call it a college of elders, um, elders and, and bishops, in, in a sense, were kind of synonymous. These were just overseers, essentially pastors. Um, but uh, there were there was a whole group of them that that led uh, each of these churches and the Roman Church at the time, according to First Clement, uh, his book here was was still led by a group of people and not an individual. Uh, where eventually, like when the concept of the Pope uh, came into play, and, and then individual bishops leading um, the entire church on their own. Uh, we're not there yet. It's it's too early for that. There's still a group of uh, individuals leading these churches. Um, as far as the letter First Clement, the only letter not in the New Testament that uh, can confidently be dated to the first century. So really, other than what's in the New Testament, this is the oldest letter we have uh, record of. Uh, it's from the church in Rome, written on behalf of the church of Rome. Uh, Clement is writing and, and uh, to the church in Corinth trying to both encourage uh, the Corinthian church, but also rebuke them in several areas. Um, once again, the Church of Rome had the loudest voice, but it doesn't necessarily mean it had authority over the Church in Corinth uh, or any of the churches like it would eventually um, when the, uh, the the Vatican and the, the Roman Church um, established that authority and that, that system and began to basically uh, tell all the other churches and the entire uh, empire of Christianity what to do. But we're not there yet uh, at this point. A um, couple other things in, in the letter itself. There's a reference to um, 1 Corinthians, Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians, where he's addressing the divisiveness, some of the ugliness going on in the church of Corinth. And in this letter from uh, 1 Clement, written a couple of decades after that, um, the uh, Christians have repented of that divisiveness. It's interesting, kind of almost the next chapter uh, Paul wrote to them uh, before this, and now we, we see that they did receive Paul's letter. They, they had repented of that, but of course um, the divisiveness had creeped up again, and, and they were dealing with it once again here. And, and two of the elders of the church had even been defrocked uh, because of uh, being false teachers and kind of leading some of this. Uh, Clement in the letter, he gives some Old Testament, he cites some Old Testament examples of people who uh, allowed their envy to, to become destructive to themselves and others, and also the healing power of humility. So he, 
he was kind of targeting envy as the problem that was plaguing the church and humility as the solution to that problem. Uh, he talks about Peter and Paul and other martyrs in, um, in his uh, letter here. Uh, I thought this was interesting. In, in First Clement, um, uh, Clement of Rome references a phoenix. And I guess for me, a phoenix is uh, that, that symbol is most prevalent, like from the Harry Potter uh, books. But I, I know there are plenty of other references. Oh, yeah. But he uses that to demonstrate uh, the concept of resurrection, Christ's resurrection. And apparently a lot of people didn't like that. And they kind of... Uh, um, you know, didn't want to listen to anything he had to say or read the rest of his letter because they thought um, that he shouldn't have been making that connection. It wasn't accurate. Or, you know, a phoenix was a, a mythical creature um, and he shouldn't have been making that connection. Talks about how uh, we are saved by faith first, but we also need good works. And then he talked about some of the leadership of the church. Uh, once again, the roles of apostles and bishops and elders and, and then also deacons. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. Um, he referenced Esther and, and Judith, um, uh, Old Testament examples of, of selfless and unifying love, and also included in First Clement is a letter. Um, in, in the letter is a prayer for the rulers and the governors on earth. So um, he was promoting the idea of praying for even the, the um, secular leaders of uh, the time. So uh, a lot of a lot of good stuff from his letter, but uh, very little is known from his life outside of that. Uh, but Clement, very important important role in in the early church, and uh, kind of neat to see how his life interwove with uh, you know John and Peter and Paul, and, <clears throat> and then led to uh, the next generation um, and the strength that they showed. So uh, enough enough on Clement. We'll come back and talk through some themes later, and I think bring him up, but. Uh, Shall we roll into Ignatius? Yeah. Ignatius of Antioch. Yep. Um, I'll just highlight a few things, and I know Stephen will have some stuff to add. Ignatius was born uh, same time as Clement, actually 35 A.D., so just after Christ, um, and lived to about 107 A.D. Um, he was known to his friends as Theophorus, uh, which means God-bearer, God-bearer. Uh, he was appointed by the Apostle John as the bishop slash uh, pastor of the Antioch Church. If you recognize the name Antioch, it's because that's where the Apostle Paul was from. So basically, uh, Paul went off to do his thing, but Ignatius eventually became the leader of Paul's home church. Uh, and uh, and uh, Ignatius may have been the second, the second bishop, second leader of the Church of Antioch. Um, ultimately, he's he's known as much as anything for his his death, which uh, Stephen and I were commenting is seems to be the case with a lot of these early church fathers. You learn a little bit about um, what they believed, a tiny bit maybe about how they lived, but it's it's their death, their martyrdom that really is remembered. Um, and he would be martyred in Rome uh, in, in 107, is believed to be the date. Uh, he was the earliest to be martyred um, outside of the New Testament, so the earliest of the apostles or church leaders to be martyred. Um, he, uh, his martyrdom, he, was, he showed great faith and courage. He, he welcomed death. He wanted to imitate his, his Lord Jesus in his death. Um, he asked all of his friends and, and fellow Christians not to try to prevent his martyrdom, his execution uh, that he was being led to because he 
he felt that uh, he would have an, a big, a bigger impact in his death than he would have uh, through his life. Um, in fact, I have a little excerpt here of uh, something that he wrote to his fellow Christians at the time. He says, I, I beg you not to have a love towards me that is unseasonable or, or badly timed. Leave me to the beasts, that through them I may be accounted worthy of God. I am the wheat of God, and by the teeth of the beasts I shall be ground, so that I may be found the pure bread of God. Greatly provoke the wild beasts, so that they may be my grave, and leave nothing of my body, so that I won't be a burden on anyone. Then I will truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Powerful words from somebody who's uh, who's moving towards a certain death. So his execution came on account of him probably being charged with atheism, which sounds weird, but uh, atheism at the time meant denial of the Roman gods. Uh, so uh, Ignatius would not defer to uh, belief in the Roman gods or worship of them. So he was uh, arrested. He was escorted by 10 Roman soldiers. And it was during uh, the time that he traveled to Rome uh, to be executed that he wrote seven letters. Uh, six of them were to churches that he had relationships with. And one of them was to the bishop or the pastor of the, the church in Smyrna, who happened to be his friend Polycarp. And uh, we're going to talk about him in just a few minutes. But uh, a couple other things about Ignatius. He's often credited for creating the hierarchy that came to be the, the commonplace one in, in the early church uh, where there was one uh, leader, one bishop, one pastor, ultimately one uh, pope. And um, a lot of people said that he was responsible for kind of promoting that, that concept. Um, but a lot of his uh, emphasis on that was in response to Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a kind of a false teaching that was going around at the time. And uh, part, of how, um, part of how Ignatius told people to avoid Gnosticism and, and the ideas within it was to tell them uh, to, to gravitate towards the, the single apostle or the single leader of the church that was most faithful and most uh, qualified to speak truth and to just listen to them. Stop listening to this other group of people or these other false teachers and just allow that one person to speak life and truth into you. And so because he promoted this, uh, people credited him with essentially kind of uh, pushing the church towards this one person leadership system uh, that ultimately became the case in the, the Catholic Church for many years. Um, we'll, we'll come back, I think, talk about Gnosticism, or I'll let Stephen um, cover it uh, at some point later on. But uh, he, he, uh, he was a big fighter of, of Gnosticism, this false teaching that was going around at the time. Um, and uh, other things about leadership structure at the time he covered. Let's see. He was the first to use the phrase Catholic Church. Uh, Catholic just means universal. Um, so whether you're Catholic or not, uh, the, the phrase Catholic Church at one point uh, applied to everybody and still does. It's still in some of the creeds that we recite, even a Methodist church, because we believe it uh, to be. It's, it's, we, we refer to it uh, within its original context as simply just meaning the, the universal church, the worldwide church. 
He was also the first to reference the virgin birth outside of the New Testament. So uh, that's a wrap for me on Ignatius. I don't want to go too in-depth on Gnosticism yet or the leadership structure. We'll come back to that. But, uh, Stephen, anything come to mind for you? Yeah, <coughs> I think you covered uh, most of it pretty well. I mean, Ignatius and actually all these church fathers are kind of um, the ones who are, um, as a Christian faith, is transitioning from a um, its Jewish origins, which it still has Jewish origins, but it's these guys are representing um, as the church is shifting to a more Greco-Roman world, um, because all these guys, I don't think any of them are Jewish, um, I don't believe, so all of them are kind of Greco-Roman, um, and they just kind of all represent that transition and that change happening within the church. And what you also see in the book of Acts, uh, when Paul returns to the disciples in Acts, and he talks about how the Spirit of the Lord is moving among the Gentiles, and and in the church in Jerusalem, they have there's a big debate about what, what to expect for from the Gentile Christians. Um, I can't remember what chapter that is. Chapter... Oh, it's about the middle of the book. Hmm. Um, yeah, so the next verse you're talking about is Polycarp. Um, he's, um, as Paul said, uh, really close friends with Ignatius. Um, Polycarp is also known as a disciple of John, um, directly followed. Um, he also followed uh, many of the apostles. So there's actually talk that um, Polycarp was, so after an apostle had died and there are many sayings of Jesus out there. Polycarp was one of the one of the people who would um what do you call it? Uh, basically uh what's that word? Authenticated hmm. the words of Jesus when there was so many stuff out there about well did Jesus say this, did Jesus say that? Polycarp was one of the people who authenticated the real words of Christ. Um he wrote many letters um warning against false teachers as did Ignatius and uh, Clement, and um, he mentions several of the New Testament books, uh, and this is before the New Testament, so this is actually really important that um, that these early church fathers are already mentioning the books of the New Testament before they've been um, canon, before they're chronicalized. So um, it already tells you that these books had a major impact on the churches, um, and the leadership within those churches and that people are already seeing these works as scripture and already seeing them as inspired by God. So hmm. um, he references um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, First and Second Thessalonians, First Timothy, First and Second Peter, First John, and Jude. So he, he mentions almost the whole wow. New Testament. At some point, one or another, um, uh, so he, he has all that reference to that. Um, his death, his martyrdom, um, he was burned at the stake. Um, was also quite, I think Paul has information on this, but it was quite um, memorable, his burning at the stake. It was, um, they were saying like he wasn't burning really, and they had to take spears and actually kill him because the fire wasn't getting to him, and um, just really kind of how much is sensational or not, we're not sure, but um, we just know his death was quite the scene. Um, um, and he also, he wrote a letter to the Philippian church. He also had a student, I don't know, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Irenaeus, I-R-E-N-A, 
Yeah, Irenaeus. I'm not entirely sure, and right. nobody's around to ask who right. <laughs> who knew him. So well, Irenaeus is kind of like he mentions Polycarp a lot in his yeah. letters, so we get a lot of information from Polycarp for Irenaeus. So um, yeah, that's kind of he. I mean, he was very influential in in the again, like he's kind of like the apostle of the apostles, the next one um, who learned from the apostles' teaching. So very influential in the early church yeah i, I think uh polycarp um at least from the the little bit of information that's available on each of these uh gentlemen he seemed to be a, quite a, a spirited almost more raw um than the other than the other gentlemen in some ways uh his his writings um in fact there's really only one um document of his that has been found uh was a letter that he wrote to the church in philippi right. um but it demonstrates that he really didn't have he wasn't a very educated man didn't have much formal education he was humble um when he needed to be but also very direct and and unpretentious um at times too so i i, I think of him as kind of a, a fireball um which is maybe <laughs> not the right thing, uh, knowing how he how he goes out. I didn't intend to connect those, but um, but he was uh, almost like the enforcer of the church. I, I I'm just uh, very few context clues, just piecing them together here. But still, it's it's interesting to think of him in that light. Um, he confronted some of the the most troublesome heretics uh, that the early church was dealing with. One of them uh, was a. a gentleman named Marcion, who was a, a Gnostic, a leader amongst the Gnostics, uh, which we'll cover in just a few minutes, but he called this guy uh, the firstborn of Satan, and uh, he just debated him in, in the public um, arena. Uh, he ended up converting many from Gnosticism back to Christianity, um, so just a, a very strong uh, leader and speaker, even without much of a formal education. Uh, but yeah, just I think um, beyond that, I'll just share more about his martyrdom. Uh, some really interesting stuff here, and I think it's inspiring to us. It's graphic and, and horrifying, but also inspiring uh, if if that's possible. At the same time, um, he was 86. Somehow he he managed to get to the age of 86 before the church, or not the church, but the uh, the leaders of Rome decided that uh, they needed to do away with him, and uh, so they came to arrest him. Uh, initially, Polycarp was going to just remain in his home and not try and run, even though he knew they were coming. Uh, some friends convinced him to at least leave the city and, and find a place to stay outside of the city to delay the inevitable. But ultimately, uh, they found him there anyway. While he was waiting for them, he had this vision um, that uh, he was meant to burn at the stake. He knew that that was uh, the way that, that uh, his martyrdom would take place. And that's exactly what happens. Um, and I, I'll just read this direct uh, from a source I drew it from. Uh, it says he was escorted to the local proconsul, uh, Quadratus, and he was interrogated in front of a crowd of onlookers. He seemed unfazed by the interrogation. He carried on a witty dialogue uh, with the, in the interrogator until that person lost their temper, started threatening him uh, that he would be thrown to the wild beasts, he'd be burned at the stake, and so on. And Polycarp just uh, 
kept telling them that while the the fire uh, that would consume him if he were to burn at the stake lasts just a little while, the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly, uh, he added, cannot be quenched. Uh, And he concluded, why do you delay? Come, uh, just do what you got to do, basically. So the soldiers grabbed him and uh, they went to nail him uh, to a stake. But Polycarp Uh, Stop them. He said, leave me as I am for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. So he wouldn't allow them to nail him or attach him to the stake. Uh, He would um, find the strength within himself to to give his life willingly, uh, much like Christ did. So he prayed aloud um, while the fire was lit and uh, he was he was burned at the stake and a chronicler of his martyrdom uh, said about it um, later on that it was not as burning flesh but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace a direct quote from somebody who who witnessed uh, his martyrdom so uh, polycarp lived a a a pretty um, amazing life and uh, the the way he uh, concluded his life or, or really gave his life uh, was just as memorable and just as powerful. Uh, so these are the three gentlemen that we thought would be most worthwhile to bring before you uh, from these early years of, of Christianity. Uh, but there's some, some common themes running through not just uh, their lives, but the church in general during that time period that we thought it'd be helpful to just chat about for a few minutes uh, before we wrapped up today. Um, Stephen, you want to start with just kind of the 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 moment in history that we're looking at here and the roles that these individuals are playing. Um, so this is, you know, a couple of them were born just maybe five years after Jesus um, was uh, ascending back into heaven. Uh, Polycarp, maybe a few uh, decades after that. So the apostles have, have come, uh, or, or really while these guys are, are growing up, uh, the apostles are out planting churches all around the Roman Empire and, and, and in some cases beyond. And uh, these, these folks have a unique role uh, where they get to, maybe as children or as young adults, they get to learn from these people who, um, who spent time with Jesus, who witnessed his death, his resurrection, his teachings, his miracles, and those people are pouring into them um, as they're growing up. What an incredible impression that must have had, uh, must have been for them um, to hear these stories of, of Jesus and his ministry directly from John, directly uh, from some of the other apostles who, who lived long enough to be able to share that. And these are uh, these gentlemen are the links in the chain to make sure that um, you know the work of those early apostles would continue on into future generations. And I would say they did not disappoint <laughs> yeah and, and i've mentioned this um several times that i also think it's pretty cool that um we're we go from studying the first uh first john to now reading about the apostles of john those who hmm. um those who follow john john's disciples essentially and um it's just really interesting as we see that connection between um john the apostle and then those who follow him and and how John's message continued after his death into um, these men and women who are not mentioned, but also women and men who continued to spread um, that message um, throughout the whole Roman Empire, really. And, and it's just incredible as you see the influence that these men that we're still talking about them today 
um, the influence that they had on the church as a whole um, and, and the church's mission of spreading the gospel. So, um, yeah, I, I just think that's um, that's what it's all about, right? It's about sharing the message of the gospel and changing the lives of those around us as they continue to spread the message. So um, another foundation, another kind of thing that um, we talked about, um, a theme that we see throughout is church church or leadership structure or church structure um, it's kind of a very at the very early stages here but the mention of bishops and um, pastors and elders and um, um, those who are um, authority and rank and position within the church and how that worked how that was structured um, each one of them um, Clement Ignatius and Polycarp all um, were leaders of the church um, and also they were debating about the church structure in the beginning of how that would look how that would function with um, we even talk about um, the congregation and and stuff like that so we're starting to see the, those beginning early workings underpinning underpinnings of church structure yeah, it's uh, this is something I've studied in in uh, some detail, the structure of the early church and, and the leadership, and so I'm kind of pulling some things I'm remembering, and and then some tidbits from the lives of these gentlemen here. But uh, you know, the the early church was unique, I think, in that um, for one, there there were no. Uh, Christian universities. You, you didn't right. go off and get trained to become a, a leader of a church. Right. Um, you just you you were part of the church that existed in in your hometown. Uh, probably met in somebody's house, not in not in a, a church structure um, in most cases. And it was a kind of an, an organic thing where um, if you grew up in the quote unquote church and and uh, demonstrated leadership abilities and integrity and, and a passionate faith, um, and you were truly a, a disciple of Christ, uh, the church would recognize you not because you had gone off and, uh, and followed a calling to uh, get an education and, and become trained as a leader, but because you were already uh, functioning and just naturally as a leader within your uh, church, they would begin to recognize you with the, the title of elder um, or bishop, uh, which essentially just meant overseer uh, of the church at the time, and you would become uh, one of the elders of the church, and this was a, just a group of, at the time, uh, unfortunately only men, but uh, that, that made the decisions and, and just kind of led the overall um, life of the church and, and um, the things that they focused on, how they uh, gathered and what they did when they did gather, um, how to deal with conflict and, and uh, folks who were stirring up trouble and false teachers. If you showed leadership abilities uh, with or without training of any kind, you could be appointed uh, as an elder. And um, so elder and deacon kind of synonymous. I would right? also say, too, that these... I would also say these guys would follow, typically guys, would follow the leader. So, like, Jesus' disciples, they didn't have, like, former training in the sense of education as we see it, but they had training in the sense of they would follow mm. their, quote-unquote, master, or follow their, quote-unquote, teacher. And this, I think, I, I believe this was a common 
common in Rome that if you wanted to learn something, you had to follow, essentially follow the teacher and be their disciple. Because I don't even know if disciples is a, just a Christian word. I think disciple just meant that you learned underneath a, a teacher, right? Yeah. So I, like I even so. Ignatius and Clement and all of them, they were the disciples of John. So like um, they followed him and learned from him. And so it's kind of like, in a sense, a, a better I don't know if it's better, but a, a training that's like feet boots on the ground. Like right, you're going right. to learn from me by watching my example and then doing what I do. And that's essentially how the disciples learn. Like they followed Jesus and did what he did. He sent them off two by two. Hey, go do what I did and then come back to me. So it wasn't a learning like sitting at desk and, and trying to regurgitate right. facts. No, it was no. like, we're literally, we're going to go out into the field and this is how we're going to learn. So, um, that that seemed to be um, the training and practice that these early church fathers, church leaders, and also we know that women also followed Jesus as well, so um, they received training. So. And it's hard to argue with that uh, structure because that's what Jesus taught. That's that was his right, ministry. Exactly. He was very intentional about um, that <laughs> method of of gathering around him disciples. And I think you're right, Stephen. I think it wasn't just within the church or within Christianity. I think uh, you know Plato and Socrates had right. their d- disciples, disciples and just right. followers, people followers, who right. who would um, model their lives after right. um, their. In this case, for the Jews, it would have been a rabbi or a teacher, or, yeah. you know, somebody who was pouring into them you know so i think that those became the leaders of the church um they were not paid for what they did uh they were you know trying to earn a living elsewhere and in in other ways but the church uh supported each other you know they they would uh pull their their resources make sure everybody was was taken care of and uh clearly the the community experience was um was unbelievable it was at a level that i don't know if any of us can can claim to have ever experienced in our lifetimes just because of how their lives were woven together and and uh the extent to which they um they they did those things so i i think the leadership structure we see at this point is that kind of that group of elders or just kind of organic um uh, leadership that, that folks that rose up, uh, kind of the cream of the crop that naturally were called into leadership positions, and and then would disciple other people. It was an ongoing cycle, and uh, of course, within a hundred or two hundred years, it had shifted, and and um, we see in the, you know, with the the Roman Church leading the way, the concept of a single individual. Um, who would be given kind of handed power and authority and the ability to dictate uh, things, not necessarily because of their credentials, um, sometimes because of their uh, their family line, sometimes because uh, just their position in society. But um, things shifted over time, and I don't know that I personally believe that that shift was a healthy one um so it's it's on the church today to try and you know learn from um from everything that we see from our history and how can we in today's world knowing how different it is how can we still kind of glean from the concepts uh that that made the church so healthy early on right um yeah we'll jump the next thing that we see um is the persecution martyrdom and how important that really how important it was to um, to the Ignatius and Polycarp and Clement there's a sense um, that especially Ignatius and, and Polycarp there's a sense that 
if you don't if you don't die a martyr's death you're lacking in and how you identify with christ it almost seemed like in many ways that they saw martyrdom as essential to their walk with christ you know so ignatius um, would write as i think paul mentioned ignatius would write don't like like pray that i will stand um stand through this death and and pray that i i wouldn't like run away from it and pray that i will i face it fiercely and um there's this sense that i think polycarp had the same idea as well that they wanted to face their martyrdom as part of their identifying with jesus i mean it was such a um, important very important for them to go through with it um and and um for the simple fact that i'll read this um this little as i was doing research um they talked about birthday celebrations so like um martyr so before birthdays we're actually celebrating our physical birth um birthday celebrations here in ancient rome had this for christians the martyrdom had this interesting twist um and it says a birthday was when the martyrs would die on the day that they die and enter into the presence of god that was their quote-unquote birthday because they were birthed into the presence of god so their martyrdom was their birthday because they birthday because it was the day they again were born quote-unquote into the presence of god and it's just such a uh, interesting twist that seeing birthdays as the day that you're martyred um because that's the day you're born into god's um, presence so it just shows uh reading that just shows how important um, martyrdom was to the christian walk for them mm. and and clearly that was just a, it was a mindset had to mm-hmm. be, had to have been a mindset that they adopted throughout their lives right. um that allowed them to see uh, that their their spiritual life um, was more important than their physical life, and it, it uh, needed to be celebrated more. So much more that they they didn't bother, uh, or maybe I'm taking a step too far. Maybe they did still acknowledge their their actual physical birthdays, the day of their birth, but their spiritual birthdays uh, mattered. And uh, to to celebrate birthdays, the emphasis, greatest emphasis, was on. Uh, those uh, martyrs, or we might even uh, think of it as saints, uh, saints who have gone before us, um, who uh, gave their lives, and uh, the date that they did so and entered into their life of salvation, their eternal life, was was the most important piece uh, to be remembered. Everything else was was less significant. Um, but that, to me, is is incredible. It points to. Um, you, you don't die a death like that without living a life um, that that prepares you for that. Uh, you, I mean, um, I'm probably not phrasing that correctly, but you, you don't go into death with such courage um, and uh, conviction and, and so willingly unless your life has been lived in a way that that prepares you to do that and so i think uh from from uh early on in their their childhood and and being trained up and experiencing this community of faith that they lived within how healthy the the church was and dynamic it was uh they were being taught uh from these early apostles and and uh, those that were passing it down to them 
that their faith was the absolute most important thing and um and so their their worldview everything about their lives oriented around that and so when it was time to die um they had no qualms about going out in a way that would have a, a greater impact and i think it's it's uh especially fascinating that you know this is we're, we're uh, a generation removed from christ so you know could, could almost believe that um, that Peter and uh, John and, and the rest of the twelve and and uh, Jesus's other disciples who witnessed his life and his death would be inspired to give their own lives up in, in the same way. But um, these are people who are hearing about Jesus secondhand. So uh, we're already, you know, when when they're dying in some cases, a uh, hundred years or more removed from Jesus's death. But the the fire is still burning so brightly in, in their hearts. Um, they have such passion for for Jesus and conviction that they're not just willing, but almost uh, uh, anxiously going towards their own demise uh, because of how strong their faith and their love for Jesus Christ is. So, um, and that's uh, you know, I don't know <laughs> if we can say that we're there today uh, in some respects also, but we also don't live in the same environment we're not faced with that reality each day and um we don't deal with the, the persecution they did so it's really hard to compare yeah. and i also want to point out too this is kind of just a little side thing but when we think of jesus jesus death jesus didn't die as a martyr he died for our so when you die as a martyr you're dying for a cause you're dying to like hey i'm a follower of jesus but jesus's death wasn't in martyrdom his death was literally for um, the forgiveness of our sins um his his death transformed us and able to have a relationship with us so there will be there never was and never will be a death like jesus death um mm -hmm. his death had a very specific role to it um that changed um, the course of history so um and finally last thing we'll mention is that all these um all these early church fathers dealt with false teachers um, and, and Paul has mentioned this several times already. We've all talked about it, that um, the two large false teachings were Gnosticism and Docetism. Um, I believe I said that right. Um, and basically what they do is, especially Gnosticism, basically is a dualism belief that the spirit is good and the flesh is evil. Um, and that's actually, I would argue, it's still roots of that still exist in our world today. Um, whether inside or outside the church, um, those roots of this dichotomy between spirit and flesh or spirit and earth and um, good and evil, mind over matter. Um, I, I, this um, reading I have also says ideal over object. Um, this idea of um, Satan, there's idea, a false teaching that Satan was a co-equal opposite force to God, that um, also, that's kind of like a, a Eastern religion thought. Um, mm. That that what's that symbol called? The black and white symbol, or um, oh, uh, you know what I'm talking about? You talking about the kar karma or something? Kind karma, yeah, kind of like that. Um, yeah, but that good and evil need to be balanced. That yeah. That there's this exists in the world, and and that doesn't. That's in scripture. God is completely supreme and Satan has no can't hold a candle to God at all um, but there's but this Gnostic view this Doetistic view has 
always exists it continues to exist today and there continue paul was fight, was writing against false teachers so there was this belief and also um judaizers too who were um yeah that's, that's some, yin and yang yeah yin, yin and yang, yang. yeah there yes. you go that's what i was thinking um but paul was also writing against false teachers judaizers which were those who believed that they had to keep certain jewish practices and beliefs had to be paired with christianity um, in order for someone to be a follower of christ and paul and the early apostles all the early apostles were fighting against that so you don't need to follow these uh, these certain jewish traditions uh, to be a follower of jesus and um, but it's just interesting that these these early church fathers and the apostles as well were writing against false teachings um, that were existed in the very very beginning of the church. It was already there. Um, these those who were opposed to the church and its teachings. Mm. Yeah, and it, I, I feel like uh, maybe they were just a little bit more intentional about calling it out and calling you know kind of basically saying you know calling a spade a spade and a false teacher a false teacher and um nowadays either we're we're less aware uh we're we're less able to identify or um we're too afraid to offend and so we're we're uh, less willing to with conviction you know point out those uh false teachings that we that we observe um but uh, i think the awareness piece is is big too because if we don't know uh, if we're not really familiar with the Word of God and, and the teachings of Christ, um, then if you don't know what the, the right teachings are and you're not you're really well ingrained in them and, and uh, have a solid foundation, then it's harder to recognize those false teachings. But they uh, they eat, <laughs> sleep, and breathe Jesus. You know they were they were they were uh, soaking in everything that Jesus had taught and. Um, and all of uh, scripture that they had available to them at the time. Um, and so they were able to recognize and point out the false teachings. This uh, Gnosticism, as Stephen pointed out, uh, was one of the biggest ones. And um, I, I had to do a little research to try and get it straight in my own head because I had heard Gnostic before and I had heard agnostic before. Uh, gnosis, which is the root of both of these words, just means knowledge. Uh, knowledge. And so Gnosticism emphasized that uh, if, if you could just obtain to this certain um, spiritual knowledge that you would um, that you would achieve salvation or you would achieve uh, the perfect life um, and they didn't they didn't so much worry about anything about how they lived um, the traditions the teachings of, of the church uh, the authority of the religious institutions it was just about obtaining the spiritual knowledge uh, so sin i don't think was an issue for them if they were a gnostic live however you want flesh doesn't matter um, it's just about obtaining this knowledge when people nowadays say that they're agnostic um, it means it means that they don't believe um, that they can obtain uh, a knowledge about God or God's existence, or um, so they they're saying that they um, don't believe that that knowledge is accessible to them, and so essentially they neither believe or disbelieve. Uh, so a little bit different than the Gnostics uh, back in the day. Mm -hmm. So uh, as I know, I, I needed to sort that out in my own head. Uh, I thought I'd just clarify for folks as much as possible, um, but. 
I think that's a wrap. We, we wanted to cover yeah. some of those important themes and connect some dots. And we'll be back next time. I think we roll into at least the um, you know, further into the second century and, and into the third. Yeah. Um, and you'll, you'll recognize some of these names as we put them before you. Yeah. Um, and we hope you're enjoying the, the uh, series, Stephen. Uh, concluding remarks? Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about this series and, and uh, what we're going to learn from um, those in the early church. And as we work our way up into the present day, we're going to end with uh, the best minister, Paul himself. So. <laughs> <laughs> Is it okay if I just lead that one? Because yeah, yeah, I don't think I trust that, you to right. talk about it. Yeah, I see you're setting um, me up for right. failure. So, yeah, just um, we're excited about it. Hopefully you're excited about it as well. Um, we remind you that we have in-person worship now at 8 o'clock, 10.30, and 11.30. Oh, nice try. 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11.30. Closer. 8.30, 10 o'clock, 11.30. <laughs> Third time's a charm. Yeah, there we go. Yes, yes. Man, you would you would think I uh, didn't work here, yeah. but I do. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, hopefully we get to see you guys in person. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>